Welcome to the first ACAMS Europe podcast. My name is Samantha Sheen, and I'm the European Director of AML here at ACAMS. I'm excited to bring you a series of chats exploring the people and topics shaping European AML today. I'll be covering a wide range of financial crime topics, all in 15 minutes or less. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like me to cover, I'd love to hear from you. Drop me an email at europeatacams.org, and don't forget to subscribe to enjoy all of the podcasts to come. Now, for my first guest, I ventured to Whitehall here in London to talk nuclear bombs, trade finance, and counter-proliferation efforts. I'll let my guest take it from here. So, uh, my name is Tom Keating. I'm director of the Centre for Financial Crime and Security Studies at the Royal United Services Institute in London. Great. Okay. Well, let's start off with a simple question. What exactly does RUSI do? So, RUSI is a defence and security think tank. covers a range of issues that are critical both from a UK national but also an international defence and security perspective. And two years ago, we set up the programme that I lead, uh, looking at issues at the intersection of finance and security, so covering money laundering, terrorist finance, wildlife trafficking, and proliferation finance. Tom and his co-authors, Andrea Berger and Emil Dahl, also from RUSI, have recently published a report on counter-proliferation finance called Out of Sight, Out of Mind. I start by asking Tom why financial institutions should have counter-proliferation finance on their radar. And what exactly is counter-proliferation finance? So what counter-proliferation finance seeks to do is to use control over the financial system to identify and disrupt funds that support the trade in items that are needed in order to build nuclear bombs, put simply. So it's, there is no real definition of proliferation. This is one of the big areas for, for discussion. And if you look at the definition that FATF uses, it's extremely broad. Uh, it covers shipping, it covers sourcing, it covers just absolutely every possible and conceivable element of proliferation that you can imagine. So, okay, what do the UN and FATF say financial institutions should be doing to counter proliferation finance? As, as everybody will know, the United Nations is very focused on trying to use sanctions as a means of dissuading countries such as North Korea, Iran and others to source what they need in order to create weapons of mass destruction, nuclear bombs, chemical weapons uh, and the like. What FATF decided in 2012 or agreed in 2012 is that they would add a responsibility on member states and their financial institutions and other regulated entities to disrupt proliferation finance as part of their FATF obligations, along with disrupting money laundering and disrupting terrorist financing. However, there was a tremendous debate at FATF around just how far uh, FATF should go, and actually what we ended up with is recommendations that require member states and their financial institutions to simply impose sanctions uh, in the way that the UN expects. So nothing particularly groundbreaking, just do what the UN says. Okay. So sanctions are the answer then? So that's what FATF requires, but it goes much more broadly than that. It's not just simply about making sure that when you screen transactions, you're not dealing with names or countries that are on the sanctions list. It's much more about thinking about, well, the finance that I am providing to shipping companies or to trading companies, might that be facilitating the movement of goods that could be made, uh, could be used to make a nuclear bomb? So then I asked Tom to explain the specific link between finance and counter-proliferation finance 
and how the financial community can help. Proliferation relies very heavily on trade. It's sourcing stuff that you that you need. And obviously that trade is linked to finance. So finance is needed in order to facilitate that trade. So therefore, if you allow finance that is linked to proliferation to progress, then inevitably proliferation will advance. Conversely, if you can disrupt that finance, ships lose their insurance, containers that are meant to move around the world with smuggled goods in them don't move around the world, uh, and the stuff that needs to be purchased in order to build nuclear weapons can't be purchased. The question is, is the financial sector properly equipped? Do they understand precisely what is required of them? And clearly, as we found in our report, and the reason we call it out of sight and out of mind, is this is something that they are required to do, but most of them do not understand how to go about doing it and precisely what it is they are really meant to be doing. A few months ago, we had our former prime minister who was placed under question about the commencement of the war in Iraq and our involvement because there were allegedly weapons of mass destruction there, and it turned out that perhaps wasn't the entire truth at the time. Maybe you can help dispel some of the, the rumours or perhaps some perceptions people have that this is, this is almost a theoretical concern rather than a real practical concern happening right now. There is no doubt that it is a, uh, it's a, it's a very real concern. You only need to look at the tests of not just underground detonations that the North Koreans conduct, but recent submarine-based missile launch that they, that they undertook. So North Korea is a state that is engaged in an arms race, if you like, and it cannot produce all that technology itself. When these missiles land in the sea, there are organizations, countries, that gather the stuff, the debris of those missiles, and they analyze it in detail. And those parts come from all over the world. And they don't just come from rogue states. We're not just talking about rogue states dealing in technologies here. We're talking about high-spec technology that comes from European countries, that comes from North America. These countries, like North Korea, are very good at sourcing the parts they need in order to produce the weapons that they want to produce. But again, this has to be traded, and all of that requires funding. Okay, so in order to buy the equipment, the skills, the goods they need in order to, to build these weapons, I take it that countries who are involved in this activity aren't doing it through what we would call clean and fully transparent corporate entities. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, the kind of structures they use or things that you've noticed. So you often hear people talking about dual-use goods, for example. So you've got goods which perhaps have a scientific use but also can be used in proliferation. You hear people talk about high-specification goods. So countries should be controlling what they export, what they give licenses to export, and so on. That's the first part. The second part is that many of these dual-use goods, whatever it might be, can be exported quite legitimately. And so the proliferators will set up the usual system of shell companies. They will employ individuals who perhaps have high standing in a particular country to purchase the goods that are needed. So all the tricks of the trade that we're familiar with from the money laundering world in particular, shell companies, offshore structures and all this sort of stuff, are used in order to hide the source of the funding uh, and the destination of uh, whatever is being purchased, who is the buyer of whatever is being purchased. So how will someone in compliance pick up suspicious proliferation activity? Banks are required to screen their client transactions against UN sanctions lists. But people know they're on these sanctions lists. So individuals that want to source material for a nuclear weapon they're not going to source it in their own name. You're not going to see transactions saying you know, that this is a transaction between 
Pakistan and North Korea or between country X and, and Iran. So in actual fact, the kinds of screening that are list-based, that are based on the lists published by the United Nations, whilst important to do, actually aren't really going to help disrupt proliferation because these individuals know they're on the lists. So then you say, well, is there another form of screening that you can do? And, and this takes you beyond what FATF requires you to do. But actually, if you want to contribute to the effort to disrupt proliferation finance, then thinking about, well, what activities should I be looking at here? Clients that I've onboarded who say that they're going to operate in certain fields, they're going to be doing certain kinds of business, now they start to be doing things which are different to what I expect them to be doing. They're starting to move goods to parts of the world which they haven't done previously, that aren't consistent with their previous activity. And then what sort of behavioural features do, do these clients display in the business that they do? So as with all these things, banks have a huge amount of transaction data that they can draw upon. The question is, how can we educate them to make sure that they are looking for the right kinds of telltale signs? Proliferation finance or counter-proliferation finance has been put out there as a responsibility, but there has been nothing underpinning that responsibility in supporting financial institutions to do what is required of them. I like one of the comments made in your report where you refer to trade finance as the stepchild of banking. Yeah, so as if the, the concept of proliferation finance is not challenging enough, it is a, it's an issue that engages with a part of banking which is, in our view, least understood. We interviewed many people in banks who uh, rolled their eyes when, when you started talking about trade finance because for people that are used to addressing money laundering or, or terrorist financing, trade finance is almost an alien planet in the banks. And what was noticeable was that where you had someone who had a trade finance history in the compliance department, they were much better at understanding the compliance complexities of trade finance than somebody who just had a, a generalist compliance background. And think about it, you know, trade finance is, to, is facilitating the trade between party A and party B. You're almost an observer as a bank in that relationship. You've got very manual processes with letters of credit and bills of lading and boxes of documents. And we heard stories from, from banks that you, know, you really think it's like something from almost from the kind of Victorian era where they're ploughing through kind of handwritten papers to try and figure out what it is they're actually financing. The ability to really know what you're, you're, you're financing is a challenge for banks. And that's why I think you need to know what it is your customer what, what is your customer's business? And then you can get a sense of whether the trade that you're financing really fits with their business. I think also there are an increasing number of cases now in the public domain. There's one very high profile case known as the Chimpo case, which was recently prosecuted in Singapore. And I think banks should be looking at those cases and learning from them. Okay, what, what mechanisms were used in that particular case? How did those that were trying to move weapons and so on around the world, how did they operate? And what can we learn and how can we improve our KYC and our, our due diligence processes to build on that case study and, and others like it? So is fighting proliferation just part of business as usual for teams protecting against money laundering and terrorist financing? Addressing proliferation finance is an entirely new arena for banks. You can't simply say it's an extension of anti-money laundering or it's an extension of, of counter-terror finance. You need to make sure you've got the right people in the room who actually understand, in particular, issues of trade finance. But I think it's also important that you can't put the entire burden on, on the banking system. 
So you know, much of this trade moves around the world in boxes on board ships. Well, those ships are insured. You know, what are insurance companies doing to understand that they know actually what is in the boxes that they're insuring? Likewise, the makers of high-spec goods that are needed for proliferation, you know, what, are, what are they doing to try and address this issue? So it really, I think, has to be a, a team effort. If you're expecting the financial sector to disrupt proliferation on the basis of financial transactions, you won't be successful. And then you come back to the perennial issue of, of information sharing. In terms of one of the other recommendations you make, it talks about this should be incorporated as part of the onboarding stage where customer due diligence is done. And I can imagine people listening to us now are sitting there cringing, thinking the automatic output of that is going to be a longer list of documents they're going to have to struggle to collect. Um, and even your report acknowledges that from both the bank and insurer's perspective, sometimes they, they just can't get all the information they need. But I, I think you mean something a little bit different from just increasing the volume of documents to be collected. That's right. So what, and this goes across much of what we do at Rusi around financial crime, but I think we need to move away from the sort of automaton approach to KYC and due diligence and actually start by saying, well, let's try and understand what, you know, what is this client's business? What would we expect to see them do? And if they start doing things that we don't expect to see them do, then let's take a time out. You know, arguably, it's about collecting less documents uh, and being a little bit smarter about the questions that one asks and then the ongoing monitoring that you do, having established a, a baseline knowledge of precisely what you expect a client to do. And you talk a little bit in terms of that recommendation about something called network analysis. If you look at some of the proliferation cases that have occurred uh, and then build the network of actors that took part in those proliferation cases, they're very extensive. You know, they really try and disguise their movements as, as best as possible. And I think financial institutions need to apply that kind of investigative mindset when they are thinking about proliferation finance. These are not simple transactions, they're complex transactions, and if you apply a simple approach to trying to disrupt proliferation finance, then you'll fail. Great. Tom Keating, thanks for your time. Thank you. For a link to the Out of Sight, Out of Mind report, or to learn more about Tom's work at Rusey, visit the show notes for this episode.